This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, I do want to remind you this is Reformation Sunday, uh, so named the last Sunday in October because uh, it was on uh, October 31st, actually, in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, the 95 Theses or Propositions for debate, uh, which is seen as sort of if, if any one event started the Reformation, uh, that that was kind of the catalyst that began it. There were a lot of factors, of course, that went into it, and Martin Luther wasn't the only one. There were many in his day and uh, after him, as well as a few before him, that the Lord was using to bring about that great revival of biblical Christianity in Europe, uh, which not only affected the church, but affected society and culture even down to the present day. Uh, we sang A Mighty Fortress, of course, a tribute to that event, uh, and, with Martin Luther, of course, being the author of it. Uh, and it's appropriate, actually, we're studying in Romans, because it was uh, Luther's studies in the Psalms, and particularly in Romans, that the Lord used to open his eyes to really understand that God wasn't calling on us to earn our righteousness before him. Uh, who, who could ever know if you had done enough? But uh, he had provided all the righteousness that we need in Christ Jesus and provided all of the atonement for our sins that we would ever need, of course, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're looking at Romans chapter 1. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 7, although we're going to concentrate our attention on verses 3 and 4. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and for the riches of truth that they contain. Father, we ask as we study them now that we would worship you, God of grace, God of salvation. Father, we pray as we study these words, we would understand the gospel better. Pray that as we study these words, we would love Christ more. We pray in his name. Amen. 
Most everybody you'll encounter has an opinion about Jesus. It's curious to note that so often, the vast majority of the cases in my experience, that opinion, even among unbelievers, is a positive opinion. They'll say something like, well, he was a, he was a great teacher, or he was a very moral man, or he founded Christianity, or some, some such opinion, but generally something fairly positive. Well, it's interesting as you, as you think about that to note that that's not anything new. You know, even in Jesus' own day, when Jesus asked his apostles or his disciples, who do people say that I am? What, 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 what is the word on the street about me? What's going on? What do, who do people say that I am? The answers, as his disciples reported back, were positive answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Notably, wicked King Herod, that may just have been his guilty conscience talking, thought John the Baptist would come back from the dead. Uh, others think maybe you're Elijah, you know, a fulfillment of prophecy. That Elijah would come, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and so forth. Uh, others say you're Jeremiah. Well, that's high praise indeed. Jeremiah was one of the great faithful and long-suffering prophets uh, of Israel, uh, or maybe one of the other prophets. If not Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. So the opinion, even in Jesus' time at that point, was uh, was positive. Those were all high labels, although you and I would say not nearly high enough. What do you think of Jesus? What do people around you think of Jesus? Well, as we look at Romans today, and particularly these verses, we want to see what Paul thinks about Jesus. What is it he thinks about Jesus? Now, as we've been looking at these opening verses of Romans, they are verses by which Paul is making himself and his message known. We saw where he introduces himself, puts up his profile there in, in verse 1, describing himself as a servant of Christ, someone who's called to be an apostle, someone who is set apart for the service of the gospel of God. We saw that uh, Paul sees his gospel as a message with roots. This is not something Paul has made up. It's not something he has just cleverly invented, some new message, some new religion. But as he points out in verse 2, uh, this message goes way back. It was promised beforehand, he says, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which, of course, for them would be their Old Testaments. So Paul says, I'm not making up something new. I'm declaring to you what the Word of God has promised all along. Well, that's how Paul sees himself. That's how Paul sees the message that he preaches. It's an old message, of course, now fulfilled, but promised long before. But how does Paul see the one that that message is about? How does Paul see Jesus? How does he understand Christ? Well, that's what he tells us here in verses 3 and 4. As he's introducing himself to the Romans, he wants to give them a very clear understanding of who it is he understands Jesus to be. And that's what we have here. We see in the first place, Paul says that this gospel that he preaches, this good news, concerns God's eternal Son. Notice the very first words of verse 3, which refer back to verse 1, the gospel of God promised beforehand by the prophets of the Holy Scriptures, the gospel of God concerning, the good news, concerning His Son. Now, even right there, we need to stop and think about that before we explore that any further and recognize what the gospel is about. 
what the gospel concerns. Because if you say to somebody, even a professing Christian, what, what is the gospel? You may get a lot of different answers. We need to understand what the gospel is not, and we need to understand what the gospel actually is. Let me give you a few things the gospel is not. The gospel is not a self-help program. Uh, the gospel is not, well, God knows you're doing your best, and if you just you know, give it your best shot, God will be happy with that. And, and God's here to be your life coach. You know, God's here to serve you, help you have the best life you can here now. God, No, the gospel is not a self-help program. The gospel is not legalism. You know, you, you need to dress this way. Your hair needs to look like this. You do these things, you don't do these things. Now, yes, the, the scriptures do can't contain commands that things that God forbids us to do, things that God commands us to do. But legalism is, of course, uh, a couple of things. The idea we can somehow are in favor with God by do's and don'ts, but even worse, adding to them our own and treating them like they're God's law. That was what the Pharisees did. They, they put extra rules out there to protect God's rules, and they got confused which was which, and they became very self-righteous and looked down on people that didn't keep their rules, let alone God's rules. So uh, the gospel is not legalism. Tragically, so many people who've grown up in churches have grown up in very legalistic churches, and they want nothing to do with the gospel, or so they think. What they want is nothing to do with that legalistic perversion of the gospel, and frankly, I want nothing to do with that myself. It's tragedy. The gospel is not religious opinion. Well, you know, I think Jesus is this and this and this, or, or religious experience. You know, anytime I read the Bible, I cry. I must be right with God. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you just cry a lot. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise on the religious affections, which is kind of like emotions but goes deeper and broader, goes through a whole list of things. You know, well, when I read a verse of Scripture, it really moves me. Uh, or this or that. And he said that does not necessarily mean you're a Christian. Now, you may be, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not what I think about things. The gospel is not how I feel about things. The gospel is not even that I have been saved. That's the result of the gospel. That's a consequence of the gospel. But Paul says the gospel concerns God's son. We need to be very clear on this. The gospel is good news. When you read the news, you're reading about things that have happened in history, right? Uh, and the editorial page is opinion, and it should tell you that. But a good newspaper article or an online article is about news. It's about something that happened. It's the facts. Well, the gospel is news. It's good news, but it's about something that happened in history, something that God did in time and space. You know, the clock's running. There are real people around history. The gospel is not mythology. The gospel has to do with concrete events that took place in history. The, the, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to the Father, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the good news of God's work of salvation in this world. So the gospel concerns God's Son. Now, your salvation, how it might make you feel, what you think about it, uh, all of those things may be consequences of the gospel. But be very clear, the gospel, narrowly defined, is the, the work of God in history for our salvation. Doctrine, yes, but also history. The gospel is about what God did. Now, it's about God's Son, and specifically, he says here, concerning his 
son. Now notice the ESV capitalizes that S. And rightly so, because when Paul refers to the son of God in that way, he is referring to him as he is as the eternal son of God. You get into some basic Trinitarian theology here. We have one God, but that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are uh, one God, as the Catechism says, equal in substance, equal in power, same in substance, equal in power and glory. Um, Not three gods, one God. We're not polytheists. We have one God, but that God exists in three persons. Well, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the one that Paul is referring to here concerning his Son, who always existed, was always with the Father and with the Spirit in the Trinity forever and ever. How can God be love? How can God love before there was anyone else to love? Well, there was love within the Trinity. Um, so this is God the Son. Now, you see this recognition in other places in Scripture. Uh, several places, of course, where Jesus claims to be divine. Uh, one very striking one is John eight fifty eight. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, and they talk about Abraham, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And there was no mistaking Jesus' taking of that designation that God gave in Exodus 3 and applying it to himself. Before Abraham existed, I am. The Lord existed. Um, When Thomas finally encounters Jesus a week late after the resurrection, and is convinced that this is, in fact, the resurrected Jesus standing in front of him. What does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. This is not like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say, he says, my Lord in shock, and this is my God in prayer to God in heaven. No. He is exclaiming to Jesus who he is. You are my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 Thomas, you, you mustn't talk about me like that because I'm not God. No. All he does is rebuke him for not believing earlier. Jesus a good man? Well, he certainly claimed to be God. He's either right or he's wrong or he's out of his mind or we don't have the facts reported correctly or something. Uh, But Jesus accepted that designation of deity. But more to our point here, in Mark 16, where, where Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And you know what happens. He turns around and says to his disciples, that's great, but who do you say? that I am. Peter speaks right up. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So when Paul here says concerning his son, he's saying that this is about the second person of the Trinity. This is about Christ. This is about Jesus, the son of God, the one who took to himself that Divine name, I am. So the gospel concerns God's eternal son. It concerns his events, his life, his death, his resurrection in real space and time history. That if you'd gone back 2,000 years ago, the other side of this world, and had stood there, you would have seen these events take place. So we need to recognize that. It concerns God's son. It concerns God's eternal son. That's what the gospel is about. The fact that I'm saved, the fact that Jesus came into my life, the fact that he's changing me and helping me is not the gospel. It's the result of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. But the gospel is good 
news about what God did for us in history. Second thing that Paul says is he's speaking about his view of Jesus. Not only is he God's eternal son, but he's also God's human son. God's human son. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, he says, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, remember, Paul's already said Jesus was promised, this gospel concerning Jesus was promised beforehand. Uh, we read an instance of that in our Old Testament reading today in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the gospel in one statement. The Lord is our righteousness, provided righteousness for us. We could not provide for ourselves. But Paul here is, as he said, uh, these things were promised beforehand. And well, here's here's a case study that uh, Jesus, the son, was descended from David. Uh, the Lord had promised that, that, that uh, David would never fail to have a descendant on the throne of his people. Of course, that points to Jesus. But Jesus has a human lineage. He comes from a human descent, actually a couple, one down to Joseph. Of course, you know, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, virgin birth. But another that comes down to Mary. And so either way you trace it, Jesus, and of course, adopted by Joseph, uh, Jesus is of royal lineage. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. But that just emphasizes the fact he was human. He didn't just pop into being out of nowhere. There was a whole line of human descent from which Jesus came. And, and Paul mentions that just to, to make the point. According to the flesh, that is, according to his human nature, according to who he is in this world, he is descended from David. And we understand that. You and I are descended from people. We can trace our family. Some of you can trace your family back way, way, way back. Um, others haven't for fear of what you might find. But we all know what it is to have uh, a line of descent from which we come. And that influences us. It influences us genetically. It influences us in terms of uh, who our grandparents were and maybe relationships we had with them. Maybe even our great-grandparents, certainly our parents, uh, influences who we are. Well, Jesus had this line of descent coming from David, uh, and the promises to David are fulfilled in him. Now, of course, we celebrate this at Christmas, Jesus' birth, but it's also necessary to our salvation. For Jesus to save us, he has to be one of us, right? If he's not human, he can't save us. He can't be one of us. So he is fully human. Now, today, that's not as big a deal. Most people say, well, sure, he was human. Um, but back in, even in the first century, that was debatable. There were those who said, well, Jesus wasn't human. Why would God become human? Jesus wasn't human. He only seemed to be. There's a whole, uh, heresy, docetism from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem like something or to appear to be something. That's why John writes in 1 John, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Today, of course, people say, well, he wasn't God. I mean, he was, of course, he was human, but he wasn't God. Well, he's both. 
as we'll see. And so he's descended from David. Very important that the gospel concerns God's human son. Now, he didn't cease to be God, but he did take to himself a human body and human nature. And he was just as human as you are or I am, except without sin. So you could say, in a sense, he was almost more human, more rightly human than you or I are, uh, distorted by sin as we are. The gospel concerns God's eternal son, and it concerns his human son. Paul saw Jesus as being human, having this line of descent, an heir to the promises to David. But it also concerns God's reigning son, God's son as king. And we see this in verse 4. He was descended from David according to the flesh, verse 3, and then verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he's descended from David, but he's also declared to be the son of God in power. Now, what does that mean? Well, you need to know right up front, um, the word declared there, um, with all due deference to the ESV, I would take some exception to, I'm convinced, along with uh, many other commentators, scholars who look at this passage, that the word is better translated, as some translations do render it, maybe one you're looking at, uh, appointed to be the Son of God. Determined to be, appointed to be, fixed as. And the reason is, in the seven other occurrences of that word in the New Testament, in, including in the Gospels, every time it means appointed or determined, it means you're establishing something. So why does they, why do they render it declared here when it doesn't have that meaning anywhere else in several, in quite a few places in the New Testament? Because if you say he was appointed the son of God, you start to get on a little bit slippery ground, or you could. But wasn't he the son of God before? You can almost fall into the danger of of a heresy called uh, adoptionism, that Jesus was just another human being that God took up and used uh, for his purposes. But Jesus originally was no different than than you are or I am. Uh, that's why there's this pressure to get away from appointed to be the Son of God to declared to be. However, based on the use of that word in, in seven other places, it doesn't mean declared, it means appointed. So what are we to make of that? Well, notice that little phrase that goes along with it. He was declared or appointed to be the Son of God in power. There's a difference. What's he saying? Uh, because of his resurrection from the dead, he is appointed the Son of God in power, almost like one big word, the Son of God in power, as opposed to the Son of God in his weakness, in his humanity. Uh, in fact, if you go back to Acts 13, the New Testament passage we read earlier, Paul's sermon there in the synagogue, uh, and he's quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, he says, we bring you the good news Listen to how similar this sounds to what he writes here in Romans. We bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the Father is this. He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. So also as it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So I I think if you understand that Jesus is now appointed to be the son of God with power, but there is a difference. He can be appointed that by virtue of his finishing the work the Father gave him and of his death and his resurrection to glory. It's not that he wasn't always the Son of God. He was. But in his humanity, in his state of humiliation, he was the Son of God in weakness. His majesty was veiled. His power was largely 
obscure. It showed itself in, in the miracles, of course. But now, after the resurrection, he is the Son of God in power. He's entered into a new phase of his messianic lordship. Now, you can get hints of this in other places in Scripture. Matthew 28, 18, before Jesus gives the Great Commission, what does he say? He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You think, wasn't it always his? In a sense, yes. But now, as the risen Lord, all authority, all power has been given to him. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, concludes his sermon by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wasn't he always Lord in Christ? Yes, but now, with his resurrection, now that he is the reigning Messiah, God has made him or appointed him to be Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And of course, very familiar passage, Philippians 2. Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Shouldn't they have done that from eternity past? Yes, but now that he humbled himself to the point of death, God has exalted him and given him this name and raised him to this exalted and high place. So it's certainly not out of accord with Scripture, if we interpret Scripture by Scripture, to look at Romans 1-4 and say that this concerns his son and he was appointed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, if you want to go and declare it, I'm not going to press that too much, but it does seem the usage of the word has the idea of appointing. People want to be careful. They're not saying Jesus became or was appointed the son of God. He always was the son of God, to be sure. But now that he's been raised, now that he's been glorified, he has been appointed the Son of God in power, the reigning Messiah, King of his people. And it took place, as he says, according to the spirit of holiness. We have spent a long time talking about that. There are all kind of theories about what that means. Let me give you just briefly a couple. If you take the spirit of holiness, not to refer to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus' own spirit, which seems to correspond with according to the flesh in verse 3, Descended from David according to the flesh, appointed Son of God in power, uh, according to the spirit of holiness. Could be just referring to Jesus' great holiness, his own spirit of holiness that was transcendent, sets him apart. Maybe referring even to his deity, although that seems to be a little bit difficult in the context. If you take spirit of holiness there in verse 4 to refer to the Holy Spirit, uh, then a couple of thoughts there. It could... Uh, could be Paul's thinking, you know, the age of the flesh, this world and its fallenness. Now the age of the spirit, the kingdom of heaven has broken in, you know, and in Jesus' humanity in this world and its suffering. He was the descendant of David, but now he's appointed the, 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 the uh, reigning Messiah, the Son of God with power uh, by the Holy Spirit. Now that he's in the realm of the age of the Holy Spirit. And then another one, somebody said, well, you know, it could just be that um, the Holy Spirit now, that Christ has given the Holy Spirit, bears witness to his, his reigning and exalted place. Um, personally, I think it makes the most sense to just say Jesus and his humiliation, uh, according to the flesh, in his humanity, was part of this fallen world. But now in his resurrection, he has inaugurated the age of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, as Paul tends to draw that distinction between the flesh and the spirit, even later on in Romans. But again, hard to be dogmatic other than to say the Holy Spirit was involved. Uh, the New Testament really doesn't speak too much of the Holy Spirit raising Jesus, but he certainly was present uh, throughout Jesus' ministry and was involved in his resurrection and in his new ministry as the Son of God in power, of course, as well. And then finally, Paul gives his name. We got all the way to the end of verse 4 before Paul mentioned who he's, who he's talking about here. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the name says it all. The name Jesus refers to his historical and human identity and his, his role as Savior. He, he, the Lord saves. Christ, or Messiah, refers to that office that he holds. And Lord is that lordship to which he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. So it really captures it all. His humanity, uh, his, his eternal nature as the Son of God, and who he is now as the reigning Lord by virtue of his death and his resurrection, his victory over sin and over the grave. Well, that's how Paul sees Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God. He's the human Son of God. He's the reigning Son of God. Is that how you see him? When you hear God's word taught and preached, when you read it for yourself, is that how you see Christ? Jesus Christ, the Lord. Is that how you see him? Then believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your house. Follow him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, and Holy Spirit of God for who you are. Lord, we pray, as we have studied these words, and pretty heavy words they are, uh, recognize that they point us to you, Lord Jesus. They help us to understand who you are. And we pray you continue to teach us, show us yourself in the Scriptures, that we might more fully uh, appreciate you and understand you, and therefore follow and believe in you and serve you. We pray it in your own name. Amen.